This is the Internet of People podcast, a podcast about how Web3 will change the way we work. We explore topics from NFTs, blockchains, DAOs, cryptos, and what it means to be a Web3 first organization. What it really means to embrace working in this new age of the Internet. The goal of this podcast is to make these highly specialized terms and technologies accessible and tangible for everyone. We're not experts, but instead three people fascinated by the fast-paced changes around us and wondering what the world might look like in a few years, or maybe a hundred. Hello, everyone. I am joined today by my co-host, Stella Lupashore, and we are here to talk to Amar Bakshi. Amar is the founder of Shared Studios. And if you haven't heard of Shared Studios, it creates portals, which are interconnected, immersive audiovisual spaces that connect people across the world live and full body as if they were in the same room. It originally begun as an art project in 2015. Portals have been set up across 100 plus sites worldwide, have connected over 500,000 people in intimate conversations across 40 plus countries. It has been hailed by President Barack Obama, who specifically, and I quote, an amazing technology, making it seem like you're standing right in front of me, as well as many others. Now, Amar is turning his attention to the future of work and taking the technology of portals and applying it in the office context so that walls and buildings can be turned into live, always-on windows. You can learn more at www.sharedstudios.com. A little background on Amar. He worked as a reporter at the Washington Post, an editor at CNN, and as a special assistant to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Amar was a Soros fellow and a Truman scholar and has an A.B. from Harvard University, an M.A. from the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and a J.D. from Yale Law School. You can follow Amar on Twitter with the handle Amar C. Bakshi. Amar, thanks. Thanks for joining us on um, on the podcast. Of course. I'm very excited to be here, but I, I do feel like a bit of a fish out of water because I'm neither deep on the future of work nor Web3. So I'll do my best to kind of flop around, I guess. Amar, you're not knowing it, you're doing it. And I think as we progress through the conversation, you will realize how much of uh, what you do and the concept you have is aligned to the future of work, to how people interact in the hybrid world, or at least how we hope they will interact increasingly more than uh, today's Zoom or whatever platform of video conference of choices. So let's dive in. Yes. And like Stella said, you're, you're doing it. And we are not self-proclaimed experts. We're just learning and we're just fascinated. And so other people who are fascinated in any realm of this space, um, we just want to have a fun conversation. So we're, we're pumped. Awesome. So tell us how Shared Studios started and how it's evolved over time. Shared Studios began, I think, from a similar place that we're at now, which was, in brief, I had traveled all over the world and met some of the most fascinating people of my life when technology was off, when I was on a bus ride talking to a complete stranger just to pass the time. And I had that feeling of losing myself in space and time with someone unlike myself and having these deep emotional connections that were fleeting and so distinct from what happened when I was back in America. And, you know, 
every interaction, every time I was in a bus, I was watching Netflix, I was immersed in newspaper in a news app. And I felt like the technology was disconnecting me more and more, even from people at home. And so I thought, what would be a way to sort of turn that on its head and use technology to really forge emotional connections across distance and difference? And so what we did was we brought together, um, we set up portals, which were gold shipping containers that we put into uh, an art gallery in New York and an art gallery in Tehran. And inside was life-size full-body video conferencing where you could make eye contact and move around like you're in the same space. And so we invited people to come in and have conversations with a complete stranger across the world. Uh, and the, the experience was incredibly impactful and moving. And so, you know, long story uh, short, this idea – so just to give your listeners some concept of what this portal is like. So it's a gold shipping container – like a shipping container painted gold. When you walk inside, you go around this bend and the interior is all gray carpet and the far wall that you're looking at is actually a screen. And what you see on the other side of the screen is someone in an identical structure somewhere else on earth standing right there in front of you. And the way it's lit and everything, it's it feels like they're right in the room with you and that you're both in this strange gold shipping container. And it has the vibe of like a confessional or a museum exhibit. And so that's the experience. So people started reaching out after having this experience, bringing their grandparents and talking about it. And so we started to expand all over the world because people wanted to join this network and to use technology to engage in unexpected ways. And fast forward from when we launched in 2014 up until pre-pandemic, we had about 50 portals running around the world from refugee camps to modern art museums, each staffed by local curators who organized classes and conversations and performances. And we were really building a global public square devoted to connecting people across distance and difference. So I had this opportunity I guess, seven years ago now to have experienced one of the portals in San Francisco. And, you know, without me just kind of self-indulging and describing it for people, what do you think, since this was your idea, right? You like cultivated and put this thing into the world. What do you think makes it so special? Um, because when you described when you weren't surrounded by tech and you were having these meaningful travel experiences, these meaningful human connections, like what do you think made the portal so popular? What do you, what drew people when you heard feedback? Yeah, I think there's a couple different things. One is the nature of the experience itself. So it's very different than a Zoom call uh, because you're seeing the person making eye contact. You don't see yourself, which is actually a big plus. You are seeing their body language, which conveys so much, and seeing how they mirror you and don't. And it creates a really strange space that I think, like the metaverse and augmented worlds that are coming, we don't fully know how to engage. So I'll give you an example. One of the early portals we had um, was in Afghanistan, and it connected to our portals in Cuba and New York. And we had these really powerful experiences where men and women in Afghanistan would come into the portal and have a conversation with someone on the other end about daily life, whatever, and would come out and say, that was the first time I've been alone with someone of the opposite gender in the same room before. And so, well, obviously they weren't in the same room, but there was that feeling of, of it. So, so one is that just how, you know, 
building it as an art piece, focusing on the effective experience of it, not worrying about working on every device, I think gave us this. The second thing is that we really tried to make special the connective power at our fingertips. And so a shipping container is normal. The internet's normal. Video conferencing is normal. So how do you imbue it with a new meaning? And so we painted it gold and we brought together different kinds of people and we built hype uh, around this opportunity that we always have. You know, you could contact someone across the world at any point, but without the context, the, the sort of the purpose, it doesn't work. So I think those two things together gave the experience a lot of power and resonance that was actually more than we expected. So there must be something related to the immersive nature of that interaction that makes people feel as if they were together, as if they were sharing the same space. Um, have you done any research? Have you uh, have you investigated the psychological impact of such interactions? And then do you see that kind of interaction easily transferable to the world of work. Yeah. Um, and the background for that question, obviously, is we have to evolve from the squares on our screens to something a little bit more immersive, a little closer that allow us to work hybrid ways, allows us to interact with people around the world. So how might this kind of technology become part of our repertoire of the work environment? So absolutely we have. And a great guest I just occurred to me would actually be our director of global programming who wrote his dissertation on communications on portals. And he researched, one of the mechanisms he used was researching about 10,000 pages of testimonials that people wrote where they described their experience in the portal. So we asked everyone who came in if they wanted to write about their experience in gold pen in a gold book, and people wrote essays and essays, you know. And so some of the the terms that came up were the sense of being, you know, of eye opening, of losing yourself in the world of unexpected intimacy. Um, and then we've done some research as well. We found that you know north of ninety five percent of people who go into a portal and come out report feeling higher sense of connection. Um, I think it's something like 86 or 7% talk about changing their views, and which is important in our case because they're connecting across the globe to someone very from a very different background than their own. Um, and so, so that's certainly a, a, an important part. In terms of translating it into the world of work, I, I think absolutely. So, you know, when COVID struck, we shut down the Global Portals Network and um, because of, you know, uh, and we started doing some virtual programming. But a lot of our clients, um, so these in educational institutions, but mostly enterprises who were before working for us with us in the marketing and branding space, said, you know, we've hired whole teams across the world who we've never met. Uh, we are our R and D folks are trying to figure out how to hold a hackathon on Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. Can portals be adapted to the enterprise context? And so during COVID, we spent uh, at least a you know the past year developing and building out an enterprise offering, which we're, you know, beginning to pilot now. And I think uh, a lot of the the things that made it so powerful can translate into the work environment. So seeing the full person, reading body language, you know, there are different studies, but a majority of communication is nonverbal. It's in body language and synchrony between participants. Um, so things like recruiting, uh, we had the McKinsey Future of Work team coming in and discussing how recruiting was very difficult during COVID for them because of how they conduct their interviews. Um, culture, we have teams that are coming together, they've never met and they miss the happy hour. Well, you can set up a happy hour through our portals or you can have coffee chats. 
Mentorship is another one. So it's not just having a Zoom call to convey information, which Zoom is great at, but how do you spend the day together in the office and sort of hear the phone calls and see how they spend their time? So much knowledge is transferred in that co-presence, which you're not going to get on a Zoom call and you might not get on a headset unless you wear it all day. And then there's a sort of problem-solving and innovation piece, which is um, – you know, a lot of innovation, as you know, and especially in the R&D context, comes from serendipitous encounters, from quickly bouncing ideas back and forth. And, you know, Zoom limits that. And so uh, Zoom is great for many, many things, but we do think there's a space for a different kind of built environment that lives somewhere between Zoom on the one hand and in-person on the other. And we can talk about where the metaverse and headsets fit in. Uh, but somewhere in that ecosystem, of course, metaverse and headsets are going to be an enormous part of the future of work. But we think this will be an important component, too, of the built environment and the office. Something that you said that really sticks out to me is, you know, I, I think a lot of the conversation as organizations were figuring out where we're in a post-COVID era, how are people collaborating, they were asking this question of how do we get people back in the office to drive innovation? But what they weren't uh, taking into consideration was the reality two to three days a week in the office still is you're on Zoom five days a week because you're either in the office Zooming with people at home and vice versa. And so they didn't solve for, you know, I think that word, that phrase, unexpected intimacy, you don't get that on Zoom, like you said, and we know that. Uh, let alone serendipitous conversations, organic, you know, ideas, whiteboarding, uh, creativity, um, and I'm sure you have much more research on this. But like, creativity within conversations is so much built on trust and the connection. Absolutely, I would imagine that would be my <laughs> my theory there. And so, you know. I think organizations kind of skipped over it and they just said, let's go to the methods and not what is the actual, you know, psychological chemistry that, that drives innovation, that drives creativity, that drives collaboration. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts there on kind of, but I think this is a big missing thing when, when CEOs are putting together their docket of three days a week and we're going to be back to pre COVID. No, because you know, the reality is people are still going to be dispersed. So much of building trust and um, signaling listening is through how you hold yourself and how you mirror the gestures of the person you're talking to. These are sort of deep-rooted, evolutionarily built human mechanisms to bond and convey um, and to attempt to build these bonds of trust. And so absolutely that's a precondition for innovation, you know, and we do see changing the built environment so that you know, an employee in a sort of more small town can still connect into other sites and HQ and be able to convey, not touch yet, but all the other sort of sensory visual cues that um, you would otherwise. So, so that's a very important part of where we see portals in the enterprise environment um, adding value. I almost wonder if there is a space and place for the new modern uh, office environment, and I think Microsoft is trying to get into that space where they are building into the into their um, smart offices very different experience for virtual collaboration, virtual conversation. But I, I think what you're offering is slightly different because it requires the same 
space design and it then provides that sense of co-presence as if you were in the same room, which is quite unique, I think, from a lot of the uh, other immersive solutions that have been uh, you know, attempted to be built. Yeah, I mean, just just a, a quick thought also was, you know, also moving around, right? Brainstorming when you're moving around is far more effective than when you're not. And there's studies on this as well, you know, up to 30% sort of more ideas are coming out when there's movement. So that's another component. But in terms of what we're trying to build, the way we see it is, um, you know, these metaverse AR spaces are bringing the digital and and putting it into the physical world. You know, they're, they're and everyone wears headsets and you're placing into the physical world some sort of piece or you're going to live in a VR environment with avatars. What we see ourselves doing is taking the built environment and offering another entry point for not just one person, but groups of people to engage across this this digital space. So it's, again, an analog physical interface. I think that's what everyone's trying to grapple with. And we think there's room for um, really paying attention to where the digital meets the physical in an office environment. So it's not everyone behind their iPhone or behind a headset. It's something common. And then once you've layered that something common... You can still do a lot of what you can do in the metaverse, volumetric capture, uh, you know, hear the CEO embodied, see demonstrations in fascinating ways. And display technologies are evolving too to give you more of that volumetric sense. But our sort of model is, and what we're trying to build out is, how do we take off-the-shelf technology and hardware, stitch it together in a way that's unique, which is optimized for capturing and conveying a whole full-body environment, and actually make it agnostic. So the shipping containers all have to be the same. What we're building now does not. So you can put it on a wall, and your room might be red and my room might be green, but we can change the colors of the room very easily so that you know we both are in a red room and another group is in a green room. And by that kind of hybridization – you can really create the feeling of co-presence and you can scale it. So we can have one portal for just small groups uh, or you could have a whole wall and bring in people from all over the place and reconstruct them into a built environment. So that's what we are sort of playing with. How do you sort of have an architectural footprint? And so a lot of the people who are interested in what we do are more on the real estate side. You know, they are the people building offices and trying to say, look, you can't just do everything from your home behind a headset. There are things, there's value to, you know, coming together. And that's what we're trying to also build on. I'm so glad you clarified this because I was starting to imagine when you scale up, do you have to have, uh, you know, hundreds of containers for each person as a cubicle? Yeah, Is it the new version rough. of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Every but, office has just pods, just lined up, you know, portals <laughs> that you go into. Well, you know, we could do a collaboration with Room one day. You know, you can take those rooms and make them. So I think, but they're different, different manifestations. Really what we're focused on is how do you stitch that point where the digital literally meets the physical? And you have to be aware of the environment, the textures, the other um, components, if there's a whiteboard, if it's analog or digital, and all these advances in, you know, in image processing and in artificial intelligence of, you know, image processing and object recognition help you do things where you can keep a permanent uh, digital space layered on top of a physical one. So when you go in and have your connection between Mexico and New York, 
the same assets that were in your last meeting are reconstituted in the physical room in your new meeting. So the AR, VR folks will say, okay, well, all of that can be done on headsets. We're saying, okay, true, but there's also a lot of value for an, a, 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 an interface for all of the Internet of Things things coming together and actually having a physical whiteboard on the wall and actually changing your screen to look different and actually doing you know, other things that are conducive to the type of interaction you're hoping to have. And I can give some examples of that later, but I think there are specific interactions that need different kinds of room constitutions. And we want to be the sort of platform to build that by connecting to a lot of open a lot of other hardware and software that's out there. That's actually exactly where my mind was going, which is, you know, there isn't there isn't one perfect environment for all conversations. And we know that, right? That's why you have, you know, very important meetings in a boardroom. And that's why you travel for work because you need to see someone face-to-face hypothetically. Now this is changing with technology. But I'd love to hear what are some of the, like what is the the tool and the method that you've found matches the type of conversation to be impactful and meaningful? Like are there, you know, coaching versus team building versus versus difficult conversations versus, you know, a town hall? What, what are you kind of finding? We are still very early. And I think our preliminary sort of use cases are more around that, you know, ever-present um, interconnection between two spaces so that people are functionally co-working throughout the day. That's the sort of, you know, use case that we're optimizing around. And the second one that we're, we're trying to understand better is recruiting where there seems to be a lot of interest in that. So, you know, it's this is where it's interesting to think what are the essential components, what gets creepy, what isn't. But you can imagine recruiting someone, having some of the core facts appearing on the screen adjacent to them, but then also understanding how your questions are eliciting anxiety or energy from that person. Now, you know, all this sort of real-time analytics is coming. Um, so how do you create a profile for recruiting that, gives you the analytics that are appropriate. I'm, I'm not, you know, that respect the privacy of participants, um, but also help you do your job best. So for innovation, that might be something very different, right? Which is sets of whiteboards and the ability to move around in a much larger wall. We're talking to one potential client who really wants to actually leverage our public network of, you know, 50 plus portals around the world to do not consumer research in the sort of typical sense of focus groups, but something a little softer to get their R&D and innovation teams just to hang out for an afternoon with game developers in Kigali and understand, you know, what, understand them, you know, and that's, uh, so these are the sorts of things we're playing around with. But I think we're very early in um, constituting a whole space. I think right now we're just focused on how do we make your wall look like it's not there? And that's, a, that's going to take us quite a bit of time to keep working on. Before we go into the metaverse conversation, I, I, I'm, I can't help but think about the, the workforce planning and workplace planning as a function nowadays in organizations, right? You have people who their whole life is to think what is the, uh, the, the demand going to look like, how the strategies, and the environment is going to impact the talent that people need, and then how many do you need of what kind and where? And then you plan the office space around uh, that. What you're talking about, and I love the word that you mentioned, ever-presence. Like that's another dimension that organizations need to start thinking about and start planning for, because that may alleviate so many 
issues and barriers and complexities that you may not even need an office as long as uh, you have access to these kinds of environment. I can see uh, exactly. we work have a presence uh, in in the we work kind of environment. Uh, really, the next next opportunity for office space. Right. So why you don't have to travel across the world or across town? You can go into an office that connects you for that you know that day long workshop. Right. I mean, uh, where you have your laptop and you share a you know, a, a beer after work, uh, which is really awkward to do on Zoom, you know? And so forced, right? I think a big, you know, there's so many, th- I think now even newer theories of why people are so burnt out from Zoom. And, you know, I, I remember the first article, I won't name it, but that came out that it was a lot around eyes, right? And eye contact and tracking and, and the exhaustion that happens there, which has a lot of um, validity to it. But I, I really do think another one is is the struggle just to to pay attention, right? Like you're just like, where do I look? And this is boring and this is awkward and this feels forced. And so you're you're even more people have to already show up in a way at work while we hope it's genuine, there is a level of professionalism. And then you layer now feeling, you know, having to like time your question because you may interrupt someone and Zoom only captures one person at a time. And then you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't hear that. Like you just think about the, the social anxiety that has uh, probably quadrupled in, in, a, in a Zoom world. Um, it's fascinating. But I also even think about campuses. I mean, so many large organizations have large campuses. And I remember uh, working in an organization and I, I would sometimes just meet with people on Zoom because you're four buildings away. So I can just see also the opportunity of, you know, if there's a wall on every floor, you're just like, hey, let's just go pop in and we can have a, a or, in, or in every room, because that's the thing we're doing that's very different than what's been done before. What's been done before are super expensive rooms. We are super, super cheap to the point where we're, you know, we're fundamentally just a software of running on a normal computer with hardware that you can buy from your, you know, regional distributor uh, and installed by a local AV integrator. So the same company you call for a Zoom room ideally would be able to install what we're doing and we're just a couple more screens. That's really the vision that we have. Um, but you know, one thing that occurred to me while you were talking was I, I have a friend who's interested in the metaverse space, but he's far more on the spiritual side. And I had a zoom call with him, call with him the other day. And in the beginning, he brought out a candle, ter- lit it, and then was silent for a minute. And he asked me to do the same. And, and then we began to talk and it was actually like an incredibly relaxing, strange experience. And it occurred to me that there is no ritual with zoom. You know, whereas there is a ritual with work, you go in, you buy your coffee, you do certain things, you meet certain people, you, you know, you get an apple and walk down to talk to Joe or whatever. Right. And so Zoom lacks ritual um, and it's just a, a relentless sequence of conversation that's really about information exchange and rarely about emotional exchange. And that's really exhausting and hyper performative. That is the, the, the phrase I should have been using. It is hyper performative. Um, and you're right, there aren't rituals and there isn't natural pause. And, you know, you have a coffee with someone, you both stare outside, you see someone walk by, you kind of laugh or you're, 
you think of something, you don't get that pause and the silence that can be very bonding. Like you said, I mean, most of communication is nonverbal and, and you can really feel comfortable with people and you don't get that. It feels incredibly awkward to also be, you know, one thing that I've come to realize now that I've been back in the office a lot more is you're not always facing people. And there's something comfortable about that, right? Sitting in a chair and you're kind of at a different angle than I'm constantly, right? Even right now, we're staring at each other. You know, people can't, they don't know this as you're listening, but we're staring at each other on a screen and it's like, it's very direct, right? As opposed to, there's a comfortability. You're out to dinner with friends and it's four of you and you're all different angles. There's something very, you know, it feels like a community that you don't get um, again, with the tile and the missing legs, as, as Stella said, which is spot on, right? Yeah, just being. Yeah, my, my grandmother would always say that when I was a kid because I think she wanted me to stop talking. She would say, you know, like the best bonding is when you just be. And that was her way of saying, please stop talking, but like I still love you, you know? Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that – one of the reasons I started Portals actually was because my grandmother – I uh, was living in Columbia, Maryland near me. I grew up in D.C., but she was grown up in Pakistan and hadn't been back in 60 years to Pakistan. And when I went as a reporter, she was like, oh, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like on the ground? And I was like, oh, one day you'll be able to walk around as a hologram and talk to whoever you want. And, you know, she passed away. This was in 2007. Four, you know, some years later, she passed away. Technology is better and better. It never would happen, you know, and, and because there was no context, there was no sense in it. There was no push for it. So I thought, what would she want? She'd want to walk into the neighborhood Starbucks and sit down and share a chai with anybody in Lahore. And how do you do that? Well, could you do it in a metaverse? Yeah, I'm sure. But there's something about the built environment that like human beings are meant to interact with. And I don't know how to articulate it yet. I guess we'll all find out. But it just intuitively feels like as much incredible stuff that's happening with glasses and in these virtual spaces there's something that we want to keep in the physical space. And I think not looking at each other is a great example of something that you want to keep just to be physically present. I love that. And I, I find that some of these obvious organizational solutions can feel um, redundant or, um, again, just hyper obvious to people where they say, well, yeah, of course people want to be in person and that's why we're going to try to figure this out. Or, um, you know, I've seen, uh, I'll give, give a shout out to 10,000 Coffees, a friend of Stella and I, fabulous tool, you know, using AI and machine learning. It essentially creates connections based on information you know about employees that would never normally meet. So same problem you're essentially solving, a, a different, yeah, and it's a very interesting technology. And the reason I bring it up is because I've talked to leaders and sometimes it takes them a few volleys, if you will, back and forth of, well, can't we just match people? Can't we just use, you know, like a formula in Excel? And I'm like, yeah, you, you could, but um, this is very seamless. It emails you, it's, it's frictionless. And the experience um, creates very genuine connections based on genuine information that people want people to know about themselves and their career and what they want to learn and what, and what they might want to mentor people about. So I bring that up because I, I find that a lot of the most, or, the most brilliant solutions to me for organizations are solutions that people innately want in life. So you think about human connection, right? You think about like your favorite boss, it's because you've had amazing, meaningful conversations and you feel like they care. Um, you think about the community you create at work 
And the solutions that are the most simple and they feel so obvious, I think often are the ones that organizations overlook and they overcomplicate and create programs, et cetera, when they could really just create an environment that feels like the world that they live in outside of work. Totally right. Yeah. I am, you know, over the past um, two years in between, we did. We were doing virtual conversations, which was more Zoom, but everyone was at home. And one place we really focused on was, you know, there's a lot of work in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. Lots of trainings, and those are great. Um, uh, and but but what we would do was just bring into conversation like ten thousand coffees. It sounds like just really different people. You know, if you're a, a woman leader in, in a company in sunny in Sunnyvale. Why don't you connect to you know the the women who are leading Rwanda's parliament? I mean that's at a high level, but why don't you connect just outside or you're com- grappling with a game design problem in you know one country? Why not engage someone around? And it's because you know you need the tools. I think doing it at scale, the way you're describing, is fantastic. You need the tools and the the you need to give people that permission to engage that very human need and you see how lonely and how disconnected and how frustrated people are because I think we undervalue that and we don't cater to it until the problem becomes acute you know and um, so how do you build that and I think it's very hard and technology can help in some ways and it can also really really hurt uh, in others and you know it's that's the challenge I think we're trying to grapple with as a group Um and certainly in the workplace. Absolutely. And I think just the last thing that I, as you were speaking, something hit me. I realized the the theme, even in both of those examples, right? 10,000 coffees and shared studios, they are both technologies at the end of the day that employees would not notice. They would have no idea that it is different than the environment around them. It's just embedded in their email or embedded in the wall that they were, you know, they go to the office, it's just in the wall. They don't realize that shared studios. And Stella, you know, has done a lot of research in this area as an expert, like people experience, employee experience, whatever you want to call it. I think the goal foremost is people don't realize the intricacies that make the experience so great, right? It's like a it's like a Michelin star restaurant. It seems like a dance, right? They're just like, they bring out this amazing meal and you're like, oh, this just is so well run. It's like, no, the, the, the intricacies to getting it to be that experience, you don't need to know about. How do you make the technology disappear? How do you make it not about the technology, but about the people? I think that's exactly right. So when we think about the, so you you alluded earlier about the difference between um, AR experience versus uh, the the one that you're trying to create. Do you see this kind of new experience requiring changes to behavior? Like how do you interact with your teammates? How you make those eye contacts? Or technology is already solving for a lot of those issues. at least the one that you're building. Well, I know for what we're trying to do, we're trying to make the technology disappear into the built environment. That's what we're trying to do so that, yeah, you, you, you forget it's there. And so that you are making eye contact and you are the right size and you are, uh, and that the audio is spatial and all of these things. Um, and I also know that, you know, when you look at a lot of the companies in the metaverse space, uh, they're starting with avatars, but working to perfect them. You know, and there's a lot of work on gaze tracking and all of these things. So, um, 
yeah, I, I think that a lot of the, you know, the heavy hitters in the metaverse and AR space are very focused on how to create the feeling of co-presence. And I can imagine with the billions of dollars that they're putting against it, they are trying to, you know, study as much as possible what makes things, you know, work. And that's where it's it's interesting because, um, well, I guess because we don't really know how people will react at scale to this, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm not I, – I, I think that the goal of the technology is to not – is to try to facilitate what was the best of the physical world. I think the risk is that there are a lot of incentives that are going to pull at technology and push it in different ways that might not want to perpetuate some of the things that aren't easily monetizable but valuable or not easily recognizable but valuable, like – sitting in an office together but not looking at each other, like that co-present silence. And we kind of will lose it without noticing it, you know? And then when we're more exhausted and more alone, then we sort of look for the next technological solution. When we forget that at root, it's about like recognizing and valuing these these components of human life that are aesthetic, that are harder. And um, I think that's the challenge as you grapple with um, all these technological innovations is even if you solve them technically in certain ways and wow people, you could very easily just continue to distract people from the person sitting next to them or the colleague across the world. So in a way, the Web3 promise is really exciting because hopefully by that time we will not be a monetizable uh, component of this world, right? There will be a lot more... um, control that we can have as human beings in interacting with this kind of technology and it's but maybe i'm just optimistic <laughs> i think the, the i think the thing about web3 that's interesting so there are two different kinds of concerns at least i mean one concern is that the economics of web3 will just be dominated in the same way that the economics of web2 are dominated and so you know this promise of decentralization is really uh, a bit of a a facade because there are platforms that are going to spring up. And there's some great articles about how platforms just move faster than decentralized approaches. And so they'll innovate faster, they'll spread faster, they'll solve certain problems faster. So how do you get around that? I'm no expert, but I think that's an interesting question. And then on the other hand, there's the problem of, well, what if decentralization succeeds in a certain way where there is this financialization of everything we do and the tracking of everything we do. And what does that look like? And that's the other sort of nightmare scenario. And I guess like all of these things, some parts of this we can predict and guard against, some parts we can't. But at the end of the day, like what's the culture we build up around it and what are the values that we sort of hold as North Stars? And and um, that has always been the place where we've been free, but that's the least recognizable place to operate in. So um, I I definitely don't know. (laughs) You know, I think I'll be listening to your podcast to uh, (laughs) learn more. Well, we'll be learning with you. I, and I find that um, this struggle between decentralization and in quite a centralized world, especially the internet today, right? Web two is a fascinating one, especially in regards to when I think about organizations, because there's all these benefits and, we talk about them on other episodes, um, and they're very real. However, 
things like, for example, hyper-transparency that exists in Web3 um, with decentralization can become also incredibly dangerous when it comes to certain aspects of information. And so, um, you know, I think about Black Mirror a little bit, to your point of the monetization of everything we do, but also the control of it will always be on the blockchain hypothetically, right? If, if, a, if some kind of transaction occurred and that can be incredibly dangerous if, that, if things ever, you know, legality changes on certain things and you can retroactively have repercussions, right? Those are some of the things that have popped up in, in my head of, oh, this could adversely impact people um, without us realizing that, you know, we're creating it. Not to mention, obviously, you could accidentally send you know millions of dollars to the wrong wallet address and there's no bank to call right <laughs> like all of these examples uh, can be very real though with with p very valuable information um especially you know personal identifiers etc but um what kind of i'm just curious i'm kind of changing subjects a little bit but and i know you mentioned you know kind of the risks and a few trends but what are some things that you're fascinated with, whether it's the metaverse or other aspects of Web3 um, related to shared studios or not, just you as a, as a human? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've that has been painful to watch as someone who loves the arts is how the winner-take-all economics of this interconnected age really brutalize artists you know, uh, and so there are a few who have enormous audiences and can sustain themselves, and then there's the vast majority who can't. And I do think there's something very interesting with Web3 and collective ownership that can allow for communities of investment and rallying behind creative life. Now, you know, at what point does that, you know, financialize everything? What's the balance? I mean, that's tricky. But it does seem clear to me that we're pretty far towards the other side right now and need to move towards helping by getting more people invested in the pursuits that have a lot of social good that right now are only sort of supported by the wealthiest people and it's relying on too few people's whim. I mean, you can apply this to journalism, you can apply this to music, you, and, and people are. So that I find really exciting. I think a question for you and I think is very interesting is sort of how do big corporate leaders think about ownership and incentivization in a world of Web3 and broader expectations of collective ownership and input into, you know, product or corporate vision, you know, is it a complete threat? Is there opportunity? But I know from the creative space, I find that really exciting. And I've been struggling to think through, you know, with portals, one of the things that's very beautiful is that every given day we have, you know, a technologist in Gaza and a refugee in Uganda and a teacher in Greenwich, Connecticut, collaborating in a common enterprise to create shared experiences. I think that's incredibly unique, right? It can be a, it can be a, a class, a meal, a performance, um, any number of different things we do through portals, the global network all the time. But, you know, how do we value people's time more and sometimes their money less? How do you create an ecosystem that tries to push against um, how unequal our world has become? And I think one of the promises of reducing borders and in this virtual space is a little bit of a leveling or at least some degree of it um, uh, of stores of value. Right. I mean, it's not just who has the most cash. There are other things that are valuable. And I think there's a lot of interesting work there that excites me. Uh, and, but whether it happens in a, in a metaverse environment or whether it happens in a built environment through us and shared studios or some combination, I'm a little less interested in that side of it. Um, 
because I think just like given my background, uh, I'm not dying to live in a world where I constantly have a headset on anytime soon. You know, I was very happy when I got contacts back in high school and I, I just can't imagine going back to glasses. Totally. Yeah, I think um, just to answer your question around thinking about corporations and and trends that have kind of, uh, how do I say, like as corporations are obviously looking at the trends of Web3, you can't ignore it, right? It's It's been around now over a decade. Um I think a few things that I think about that are interacting at the same time. And so to ignore the socio-political environment over the, especially over the past eight years in the U S but I would say globally in its interaction, um, with the internet, uh, I'll give an example. So social media, even though in web two, obviously extremely centralized, privatized and monetized, based on people's information. And we've seen the swing towards Web3. Organizations know, though, however, what they do is reflected in social media and buyers, consumers, but also employees care about what those actions and decisions are. So that's one that I think did not exist before, uh, even though this is Web2, kind of the uh, transparency of the internet. This idea of like, I can have an opinion and a vote, even though it's I, I, I'm not a shareholder of a company, right? Like on Twitter, you could just like annihilate a company's culture um, w- with a few pieces of information, and that was could never be done before, you know, 2003 or whatever. Um, so that's one that I just find interesting, and then you layer on Web three. And with the the transparency of interactions, um, it's just fascinating. But then, sorry, last thought is, is, you know, take Ukraine, for example, and the movement that happened so quickly with crypto. And this is before, you know, the, the most recent crypto crash, but moving money so quickly because everyone has a phone so, so powerful. And I think organizations um, are, are realizing that there are lots of bureaucratic things that have held them back that are no longer, exi- like think banks no longer have to hold this like three to five day, you know, transfer. Um, that's a threat. It's a huge threat. And so I think it's inspiring a lot of leaders to think about, okay, maybe if we're not even in this space, we have to start either worrying or incorporating or partnering. Um, And Keiki says this all the time, our our third co-host, it's the technology is not going away. But kind of to your example, Amar, the, the, you know, companies, the, the methods may change, but the actual underlying technology is not. And I think the things that are going to stay are this idea of that everyone kind of has a vote and you don't have to have a certain position of power to matter. And how that manifests, I think, is going to look very differently. But um, it, it's it's very fascinating to me that you no longer need a bank account to have you know socioeconomic power in the world of Web three. I mean, that in and of itself is is an idea that I cannot explain to you know my sixty five year old father, right? Like, and I, I I I it can seem obvious to people who understand what's going on, but this is a huge huge shift. Well put, and I'm, you know that is certainly. Um, uh, you know, a good, a, a positive component, a critical composite, positive component of these developments. 
So one thing that makes me realize is as more and more people um, lose faith in political systems, in religious and spiritual systems, and they turn to corporations to start solving some of these bigger systemic issues, um, there is this component of what your technology is providing is building empathy for each other, right? So in a way, you could use the corporate experience or the employment experience to build those bridges and eliminate those borders. And I, I really loved all of the examples you have on your website about the civic engagement that you you want to uh, drive, about peacekeeping, um, uh, global conflict medi uh, mediation that can easily translate into the team environments is just a brilliant connection between the kind of the macro world, uh, global world, and day-to-day -day activities when we go to work. Yeah, I you know there are a couple things with um, you know what's nice about the global. So we began as art, and we have portals and all these different sites. And as we started to grow into corporations, a lot of what we did through portals was have, um, you know, one of our big partners is Juniper Networks and have Juniper Networks employees come down and uh, mentor young women who are coding in Afghanistan. And, you know, it's hard to do that uh, just on a Zoom call and this and that. You need the social, you need, every, you need a whole ecosystem of people involved. And it's just a beautiful um, ability to forge this quick connection. Um, and then you can do service opportunities every day, right? And we've done a lot of work even with incarcerated communities where we have portals there and classes and teachers would come once a month because of all sorts of restrictions. Well, now they can come once a month plus do something every day. Um, there's a lot of things like that. And the other, you know, example that we get a lot is companies that have an you know, an office maybe in New York or San Francisco, and then they have a production group in Mexico or in Bangalore. And there's a lot of lack of empathy, lack of understanding and uh, dismissal and you know, kind of prejudice that'll come just from not knowing and only interacting with tricky language barriers. And I think there's a lot with what we're doing. You see them, it's different. You recognize they're tall like you. Uh, but also it's very exciting how language and live translation is becoming so incredible that, you know, another thing that's going to be fascinating is what's it like to work in a world where the language you speak almost doesn't matter. And then you're interacting. Uh, I think that's very exciting for a truly sort of borderless ecosystem of collaboration. Uh, and I, I do think seeing the full person is a really obviously important part of building those relationships um, with other human beings. Borderless ecosystem of collaboration. I am getting that and putting it above my desk. That is brilliant. If you have not, if you have not put that somewhere, Amar, you need that somewhere. Well, I'm going to listen to this podcast and whenever you flag something or market, I'll uh, come back. One thing I've never been good at is um, distillation of these things into, into phrases. So Thank you. I can be the distillation person. I will just tell you all the brilliant phrases that you that you sputter. <laughs> it's true, though. The only other question I thought we could we'd do is just like the send off. Um, Amar, as we just ask if you have any funny or crazy experiences with Web3. No, I was just like talking to a virtual Einstein today, which was kind of interesting. Um, there's a great McKinsey Future of Metaverse work thing I'll share with you. And it linked out to a company. It's a little scary, but you know, they're making these like embodied AI chatbots. So it's like, you know, a mortgage advisor who's a AI chatbot thing. 
So I didn't click on that one, uh, but I did click on the, the Einstein one. And, it, you know, it didn't quite like totally work, but I mean, obviously it will. Right. And, um, you know, that was a, a kind of eerie little feeling because, you know, as, as Einstein looks more Einstein-y and you draw on the language of Einstein and everything he's ever said, um, it, I don't know what to make of that, right? You talk about these embodied workplaces and these full-body video walls. Well, what if there's like an avatar Einstein walking in the other office? I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it, but I'm sure that's coming, you know? I mean, when you look at like port- with what we're doing, portals, you know, the, the, in schools or shopping malls or, you know, whatever, uh, these sorts of things will like come into the built environment too. And, you know, you'll be interacting with an AI bank teller who looks like a person. I don't know, you know, I don't know what that's going to do to us interacting as normal people, right? And, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is just verification in video calls and how important that's going to become in this world of just incredible digital power. Uh, so I would say that was a crazy thing from today. But I feel like, you know, every time I dig into this space, there's a lot of crazy stuff just everywhere. Uh, that's exciting to see. I hope I'm speaking for the both of us. I think you're the name of your product, you know, the portal, it's so adequate and it's so appropriate for what you're trying to do. You're creating a portal into another world, but the difference between a lot of the traditional portals in that a lot of the HR people have implemented before is you're building a more humanized experience, an environment where people can see, feel, experience each other as opposed to just a technical transaction. So for that, I'm so grateful. Thank, and at the end of the day, you know, like we we do want jobs for people to, to you know, and so uh, one of the things that only we can do uniquely is be human and share the stories and things that make us human. And I think as more and more of certain kinds of jobs get eaten up by AI, Web three, machine learning, whatever, uh, the value we place on that will probably commensurately rise. And so we'll want mechanisms to really fully embrace it even caretaking or whatever, you know, there's so many different arenas where this will happen. So anyway, well, thank you for having me. Um, I love the work of both of you and I'm very uh, excited to listen to the full series and, and um, learn more. And I hope, yeah, I hope this uh, was, um, makes the cut. (laughs) So great. It was so awesome. It was above and beyond. Thank you so much, Amar, for your time. And we're excited to continue to follow Shared Studios. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to an internet of people. If you have questions, ideas, or if you know someone who'd be great on the podcast, use the links in the show notes to get in touch with us. If you liked what you heard and want to go on this journey with us, please subscribe and share. Until next time, build trust and stay distributed.